Many of you guys know that uh, Vicky and I have a wonderful furry friend. He is overtly affectionate, he's beautiful, and he's cute, and his name is Chester. We've got a picture of him. He honestly is a real-life stuffed bear. Um, we prayed over a, a stuffed animal, and he became a dog, and that's Chester. Um, but uh, we got him at eight weeks old, and he's a labradoodle, and we got him from a breeder uh, up north, about 45 minutes from here, uh, of October of last year. He was eight weeks old when we got him, so he's a little over a year old now, and he is literally the greatest dog ever. And I'm not just saying that as an opinion. This is fact, that Chester is literally the best dog ever. He brings and adds so much joy to our lives, and he's a blessing to us. And with owning a Labradoodle, we have come to learn that they are more to handle. There is a lot more maintenance to these dogs. As you might know, they have hair and not fur, and so it continuously grows. So we need, him get him, you know, we need to get him groomed regularly. We need to brush him every few days. And what we also do is we bathe him more regularly than a short-haired dog. And so you would think that Chester being half Labrador Retriever, and then half Poodle, you would think that he loves the water, but oddly enough, he does not. And um, so we think he's broken, so we're actually going to return him and see if we can get a refund. I'm just kidding. We're going to keep him. We love him to death. Um, But he kind of used to like baths. He liked them probably from about three months to six months, and it's weird. Now he just plain hates the water. He hates baths too, and he doesn't necessarily fight or growl or bark or bite us when we try to put him in the bath water, but you can tell that his demeanor completely changes when you turn on that water in the bath and you start running it. He does not like it. And so what happens is that he sulks and his face becomes frowny. I mean, they don't really smile, but you can kind of tell that he's like not having it. And he looks depressed and when I put him in the bathtub, he won't even make eye contact with me. He's just, he is so frustrated. He's so sad. But for me, I'm not going to stop bathing him until he's clean. And so he's in there. So I soap him up and I lather him up real good. And then I rinse him off. And like clockwork, and Vicky and I have this down to a science, I'll yell for Vicky because I give him the bath and then she dries him off. And so once I yell for her, and she comes in, and then he sees her, his demeanor completely changes. And so he loves his mama. He is obsessed with Vicky. He can't wait until she comes home. And so once she comes through that door, a shift happens. He straightens right up, and his tail starts wagging, and he can't wait for her to grab him and wrap that towel around him. Then once he's dried off, she gives him back to me, and then I sit down with Chester. I blow dry him off, and I brush him, and then we have a cute and fluffy, clean, and presentable Chester, and he's completely new. But what I want to ask is what happened in him for that shift to happen, to become, uh, to go from miserable to joyous? What happened to move him from depressed Chester to a happy Chester? And what happened was is he saw hope walk through that door. And even though he didn't communicate it audibly, and I can't hear it, I could see it clearly in his body language that he was thankful to be out of that bathwater, to be out of that bathtub, and then with his mama, who he loves so much. The transition from grief to joy seems, seems like a gigantic leap to us, doesn't it? 
when you're deeply grieving, it can seem nearly impossible that you would ever come out of it and into a place of joy again. And it doesn't happen overnight. And then in fact, it could take years. But as we look to God's word this morning, I'd like to show you in Psalm 69 how David does it. And it's remarkable and it's clear. And it's in just one chapter that we see this. In the course of Psalm 69, something radical takes place. A drastic change in tone happens. Verses 1 through 29 in chapter 69 is like night. And then verses 30 through 36 is like day. Verses 1 through 29 are filled with grief and desperation and anger. And then in verses 30 through 36, they're filled with hope and enjoy. And so what took place? A gigantic shift happens, and you'll see why here shortly. Being a worship leader, the book of Psalms is naturally one of my favorite books of the Bible. I absolutely love it. So many worship songs have been birthed and written out of the Psalms, and it's a natural process. And these Psalms were already written to be songs. The book is filled with a wide range of human emotion, but it's a wide range of emotion which is focused on God. And it's a book filled with so many things like poetry and music, order and chaos, praise and weeping, sorrow and joy. But virtually every emotion we feel and go through in life can be found in this wonderful book in the Bible called Psalms. So our text this morning is Psalm 69, and our key verse here will be verse 30. The psalm was written by King David, and it's a musical piece that was written to be used in the formal worship of Israel. Scholars believe that this psalm was a, uh, a piece that was composed to be used with music. And the reason is, is because there's, if you look in your Bible, it may even say it. If you look next to chapter 69, it may say something like this, to the choir master, according to lilies of David. So it's believed that lilies there is a musical piece that this psalm is intended to be sung to. And the literary genre of the psalm is a word that many of us are probably familiar with. It's called a lament. This specific psalm is a lament psalm. And what I'd like for us to remember this morning as we kind of navigate through our text is that this lament is a passionate expression of grief. And for David, the author of the psalm, it's a personal and passionate expression of that grief that he's feeling. And here we will see that this lament arises because he is suffering unfairly for his obedience to God. You might actually call it persecution. David expresses here in this psalm that he's been falsely persecuted, but persecuted for what reason? We're not entirely sure. Scholars don't know for sure, but the only clue is, is if you turn to verse 4, David here says, what I did not steal must I now restore. So here David may be actually dealing with people around him pointing fingers and accusing him of taking something, but we don't know for sure. So at the beginning of Psalm 69, David is lamenting. He's weeping. He's crying out. There is something terrible happening inside of him. And he's lamenting about this situation in life. Real quick, I want to give you just a quick flyover of what the seven elements of a lament psalm are. And then we'll start zooming in a little bit more closely to our scripture texts. 
The seven elements of a lament are number one, invocation. If you're taking notes this morning, you'll see it up here if you'd like. Number one, the invocation. This is basically seeking God for help as the ultimate authority. Number two is the plea to God for help. And this goes hand in hand with the invocation. Number one and number two do. Um, They go hand in hand with each other because there is literally no one else that the psalmist can turn to at this time but to God. It's a plea to God for help. Number three, there's the complaint. And this is the focal point of all these lament psalms because it's the complaint where we actually learn what has motivated the writer to write the psalm. Number four, the confession of sin, or sometimes it's the assertion of innocence like we actually see here in chapter 69. Here as Christians, this really resonates with us because we should be good at confession of sin. Amen? Raise your hand if you believe that. We should be very good. All hands should be raised. If you are saved, this should be something that you're doing regularly in your prayer life. Um, this should really resonate with us. This should be part, part of, integral to our spiritual lives with the Lord. When we sin, we go to prayer and we confess our sin to God or you know, to one another. But on the other hand, the assertion of innocence is something we might not actually relate to easily. But it's important to remember there are occasions where people are falsely accused accused or persecuted, as we see here in Psalm 69 with David. Number five, the curse of enemies. In this psalm, we see David curse his enemies. And this begs the question, doesn't it? Should we still do this? Should we still curse our enemies, right? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're under grace. Amen. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were to be holy. They were to be separate. Um, and the nations were supposed to flow to them. The other nations were supposed to flock to them. And occasionally, they were to pick up the sword and go to war against their enemies. But in the New Testament, as we are, the new believers were not to fight against the unbeliever. But we're called to pick up the sword against spiritual forces in the heavenly realm, and we're supposed to engage in spiritual warfare with our sword, which is what? God's word. Amen. Number six, confidence in God's response. This is simply knowing and expecting God to deliver the writer of the psalm. Number seven, him or blessing. And at the end of these biblical laments, like we see here in chapter 69, the psalm, at the end of it, there is always a movement, and this is what we're going to focus on. There is always a movement. There is always a shift from grief to joy. And the joy here is expressed through him in this psalm that we're looking at. The outline of what we just went through, of the succession of these seven elements, fits perfectly for this chapter uh, 69 uh, lament here. So let's focus our attention on our scripture passage for this morning. I'm going to read out loud verses 19 through 36, and this is actually a really long scripture passage to read, but the reason I'm doing this is because I want us to hear, I want us to audibly hear uh, the portion of the grief and anger that David is dealing with. And so we're going to pick the psalm at at verse 19, and uh, David here is expressing his anger. He's cursing his enemies. And then what I want you to do is I want you to listen carefully to the shift. I want you to listen to that transition that we're going to zoom in on here shortly. Starting at verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame. 
and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those who you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it, the offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Did you hear the shift into joy and thanksgiving? It happened in verse 30. I hope you heard it. I'm sure you did. David said that he will praise the name of the Lord with a song and that he will magnify him with thanksgiving. Magnify. Magnify. There are two types of magnification. One type of magnification is microscopic magnification. And this type takes something small and it increases its size so that we can see it clearly, so that we can see the detail of it. Like when you use a microscope, right? To look at slides of different kinds of cells, you take a swab, you swab it over the slide, you slide it through the microscope, you shine a light through it, and guess what? You're looking at something that you can't see with your naked eye. So that's one type of magnification. The other type of magnification, you guys probably know where I'm going with this, is telescopic magnification, right? This takes something that is large already and makes them visible to us. We can see the detail of it. How many of you guys have ever used a telescope to look at the night sky? Pretty sweet, right? You guys have probably looked at the moon. When you look at the moon with the naked eye, I, I need glasses. I actually should be wearing glasses, but I don't. But when I look at the moon, don't look at the sun, by the way, with your naked eyes. Um, but when I look at the moon, just with my eyes, I, I can see it clearly, right? But when I take a, a telescope and I point that thing at the moon and you look through the lens, what do you see? You see all the craters. You see all those huge, like, round pits in its surface, and you can see the detail so much more clearly. It's amazing. This is the type of magnification that we need to see God through. He's large. He's the largest. He's the biggest. And we take him and then we behold him and increase the size of him in our spirits as we pour out thanksgiving to him. 
And so why should we magnify God to thank him anyways? Why is, why is that um, correlated? Isn't God big enough? When we give thanks to him from our hearts, God is magnified. Thankfulness, here it is. Listen, thankfulness glorifies God. And how is magnification the key to thankfulness? This morning, if you're a note taker, I'd like to offer three points here on why magnification is so important in giving thanks to God as it relates to how we move from grief, like in verses 1 through 29, into thanksgiving, like in verses 30 through 36. How is it that David, who was weeping and lamenting and crying out in his soul and in his heart in the first 29 verses of the psalm, and then suddenly in verses 30, a shift happens and his spirit is revived and there is suddenly hope for him. How is that possible? It's because he starts giving God thanks. He starts pouring out thanksgiving. But how? How does he do that? It's by magnifying the Lord. Hallelujah. Number one, we magnify to elevate God. We magnify to elevate God. The Hebrew word for magnify is gadol. And another Hebrew synonym for magnify means to lift up or elevate. When you magnify something with a magnifying glass or a telescope, it appears to be brought up to your eye or lifted up closer to you, doesn't it? It gets bigger as you bring it closer. We need to elevate God in our lives. Our God is the most high, the one and only true God. And think about it. In our culture, every day we're being taught over and over that being above others will help us win. It'll help us be successful. That moving up in the world is the right thing to do. Climbing the corporate ladder moving up the ranks, going higher in the chain of command. We hear these things all the time. And those who have fought hard to be successful, many of their stories sound like this. I had to claw and climb my way up to the top. I moved from the bottom to the top and it took everything within me, but I did it. And the kingdom of God is not at all like that whatsoever. The kingdom of God is actually flipped. And we know that from Scripture, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 16, that the last shall be first and the first last. Our values here on earth are completely different. In our culture and here in America, it's vastly different from what God values, isn't it? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. It's completely backwards. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how is it that we can elevate him or lift him higher than he already is? Why does, is that a requirement of his? Does, does he need us to prop him up? God's position, right? He's sovereign. It's complete. It's done. He's above all else. And the answer is that we cannot lift him up any higher than he already is. Our God isn't a God who is dependent on us or our physical bodies to lift him up and then hold him in his lofty position. It's not it. The lifting of him is done in our hearts. And the elevation of him is in our lives. The key to thanksgiving is magnifying God to elevate him in our hearts above all else, to elevate him above the other things 
in our lives that we hold so near and dear to our hearts. We want to protect those things. We want to live for those things. And some of us even die for those things. Elevating him, it's a, it's a positioning of him, if you will, above all that we are trusting in for our lives to be secure and complete. And David understands this. David knows this. He knows that he must magnify God to elevate him above all else in his life. He has nowhere else to turn to. He's at the lowest point of his life. The walls are crashing in on him, and even though he feels like he's drowning, he refers to a lot of water references in this psalm. He says the floodwaters are rising. He says he's in, you know, up to his neck, and he's trying to find a foothold. But even though he feels like that, he does what he knows he needs to do. And what he does is he magnifies God by elevating him with thanksgiving. This elevating, this destroys the grief and anger, and then it sets him up. This positions David to move into joy by giving thanks. David positioned himself low, and he elevated God. It's exactly what he did. We magnify to elevate God. Number two, what else do we do? We magnify to expand God. We magnify to expand God. As David is crying out in his heart and writing this psalm, he knows that there is nothing and no one superior to God. He knows God is the only place that he can turn his grief to. In our lives, we need to know this deep down in our hearts that God is the only one that we can turn to. And so as Christians, we're called to make this greatness of God begin to look as great as it really is. God is great. When you magnify an object, right, something happens to it. Expansion happens. The object becomes bigger and it becomes enlarged. It grows. The same thing occurs when we magnify God. As we journey with God through the years, our eyes become more opened and focused on the details of what God is doing in your life and the things that he has done don't you know that this is true for your life as you walked with Christ? We start to see the intricacies of creation. The other day, I think it was like two weeks ago, I was coming down 31, driving home to Beeville, passing by all the commercial stuff here, McDonald's, Lowe's, Chipotle, so delicious. And I'm looking, and suddenly, I wasn't aware of it at the time, I'm going through all the traffic lights and stuff, and suddenly as I kind of move out of that commercial area and it starts opening up a little bit more by the old key bank, I see the sunset. Oh, my word. It just moved me. It was so beautiful. The colors were so vibrant. There was like oranges and purple and, and green and red, and it was just the most beautiful thing ever. It's like one of those things where you just want to stop, put your car in park, and just enjoy that sunset. I loved it. We start to see the intricacies of creation, the small, minute things that we've never even seen before, like the patterns of snowflakes, the fingerprints on your hands, but also how God might have saved you from maybe a bad crash if you would have left your house a minute earlier, how he healed one of your relatives, or maybe how he even healed you. In Romans 1, 20 and 21, it says this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who's they? The unbelievers, the Gentiles? Our duties is to live our lives to tell the story of Jesus in such a way that will make God look as great and big as he really is. We need to expand God in a, in a genuine way because this attracts the lost, doesn't it? Amen. This attracts the lost to see the real life, Jesus in us. We need to expand God in our lives so that the unbelievers see us and they're like, wow, what they believe, these guys are the real deal. They have been converted. I want to know this Jesus. Even though they may be blinded by God who is literally all around them at all times of the day, even though they might be blinded by God, he's being revealed to them in creation in the whole world. And we can be a light to those in darkness by showing them who Jesus is through our lives by expanding God and making him look as great as he really is. A practical way that we can expand God in our lives is by decreasing or by becoming smaller. And uh, not by losing weight and shrinking our waistlines, which is a topic that I can stand to hear about a lot, and uh, especially before Thanksgiving. I mean, there is so much great food just right around the corner next week. It's going to be delicious, and we'll probably be putting away 3,000 calories in one meal. Sounds awesome. Make sure you get your stretchy pants out. (laughs) I will. But I think God is speaking to me about this personally, but I digress. We can expand God in our lives by decreasing. John the Baptist said it the best. You guys might remember this. In John chapter three, he said this in reference to Jesus. He said, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. And there seems to be a self-awareness of John the Baptist at this point. It seems to be that he knows his position But I don't think it's just a self-awareness that he's feeling. Rather, I think that this is a Jesus awareness. He knows, he knows that Jesus must increase. And that was John the Baptist's life. That was his call. That was his kingdom duty. This was his assignment to prepare the way of the Lord. And so John knew his position. He knew that Jesus must what? Increase, enlarge, become bigger. And that John himself, he knew that he needed to decrease his inner man. Point number two, we magnify to expand God. Last point here this morning. Number three, we magnify, obviously, to what? To thank God. We magnify him to thank him. Our key verse this morning is verse 30 in Psalm 69, and it says, I will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. When we give thanks to God from our hearts, God is magnified, plain and simple, thankfulness glorifies God. And why is that? Why do we utter the words in our prayer time with God? I literally just did it in worship. I said, thank you, Jesus. This is constantly flowing out of our mouths. If you love Jesus, this constantly happens. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. It flows from our lips, but I want to ask you this morning, is it connecting with your heart before you utter those words? Is it resonating in your heart before you even speak those words? Why does thankfulness glorify and magnify God? The answer is simple. It's because it is better to give than receive. 
In Acts, the apostle Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, and he tells them to remember the words from Jesus that it is more blessed to give than it is receive. When you say thank you, you are giving something. You are giving thanks. It's a great feeling to actually receive that. When somebody says thank you for something, don't you kind of walk away like just a little bit lifted up? Doesn't that make you feel just a tad bit good? Everybody here should be shaking their head yes unless like you are just a like terrible, terrible person. But Jesus says it is better to give. Why? Think of this. Why is it so, think of this. Why is it so hard to say thank you when you're mad? right? For you who are in a relationship sitting down this morning, you probably have had this maybe with your spouse or with your significant other. You're like maybe in a little spat and it's like, thank you. Like, you know, if Vicki and I are having a little spat over what's for dinner and she says, um, and she's making veggie burgers with a kale salad and maybe I wanted a medium rare cheeseburger with a side of loaded fries with cheese and bacon sprinkled all on top. You guys, are, your stomachs are probably growling. Why, why would it be hard for me to say thank you to that? Okay, why? Hmm. You know, because saying thank you is a compliment. It magnifies people. Think of it this way. I, I could say thank you, honey, for making me what I wanted for dinner. Thank you for making me my medium rare cheeseburger with a side of loaded fries with cheese and bacon on it. Thank you so much, honey. Thank you. It's easy. But when she puts a veggie, soy, icky, gross burger in front of me with a side of kale, it takes everything, literally everything inside me to say, thank you, honey. Like, this looks delicious. Mm, I can't wait to sink my teeth into that veggie burger with kale. Ugh. Kale. <laughs> Genuine gratitude that comes welling up from our hearts towards God expresses that He is magnified as the sole source of our blessing. We are made aware of this, and therefore we can then acknowledge God for that so that He can receive our thanksgiving. Here's the thing in order to thank someone for something, we need to be aware of it, don't we, in the first place? A few years ago, when Vicki and I moved into our house, we're thankful for our house, we love our house, uh, we had some siding on the back of it that needed to be replaced. And I didn't have the experience to do it, nor did I have a lot of ton of time to watch videos and maybe learn from someone how to actually install siding. I'm sure it's probably pretty easy to do, but I'm not a super, super, super handy construction guy. Um, but it was on my list of things to do for the house, and uh, she knew my heart. Vicky knew my heart. She knew that I wanted to do it, um, but she knew that I didn't have the experience nor the time. And so one day I come home and I pass by the siding. This is on the back side of our house, and we use our back door as our main entrance. And I walk up, open the door. I, I you know, I, I pass by that siding, and I walked in, and she's making dinner, and she's like, "Well, honey, what do you think?" I'm like, "What do you think about what, honey?" She's like, "You didn't see it." I'm like, "See what?" And she's like, the siding, it's been replaced. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, okay. And then I go back out and I'm like, whoa, it is, it's changed. She's like, yeah, dad did it. I'm like, wow, that's great. If I wasn't made aware that my father-in-law, Dan, who I love dearly, that he changed the siding, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to say thank you. And so in order to thank someone for something, we have to be aware of it. 
Are you, this morning, are you aware of the greatness of God in your life? Are you aware of it? Are you sure that you're aware of it? One thing that I wanted to make you aware of this morning so we can thank God for is that the church, our church, was recently able to bless 75 children in the Operation Christmas Child Shoebox Campaign. Let's give God praise. Amen. We gave not so that we could be thanked, right? We gave so that God could get the glory. We also want to thank the Sunshine Seniors, Marion Giles. Thank you so much for doing a wonderful job this year again with the uh, shoebox campaign. Praise the Lord. So we magnify to thank God. We magnify to thank God. The killer to our thankfulness to God is the ever so present love of ourselves. When we zoom in and focus on ourselves and only have our selfish motivations propelling us in our lives, it it completely crushes our gratitude for God. It kills it. It's an attitude like this we want to be thanked, we want to be acknowledged. We want to be applauded. We want that pat on the back. We want the glory. It becomes all about me, 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 and me. But when we humble ourselves, when we lower our position and we take a step back and we zoom out, decrease our size, we can start thinking of ourselves in our natural form. And that is broken, unworthy, ashamed, alienated, desperate, sinful, guilty, and condemned. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save our lost hearts. He lowered his self. He lowered his status to the lowest form and came as a servant. Being God himself, he didn't take the status to elevate himself. He came to earth and lowered himself. He left all of the riches of glory of heaven and he came to live the life that we could not live. And that is a perfect and sinless life. And he died the death that we so deserved. And he defeated death by resurrecting. Jesus made it possible for us to magnify God through elevating him, expanding him, and thanking him. Jesus lowered himself, becoming less in the form of a servant, so instead of being broken, we could be healed, worthy in him, unashamed through him, no longer alienated, but known by him, completely satisfied, completely whole, and completely saved, without guilt and condemnation, we're now able to express our gratitude to him with thanksgiving. Church, friends, 
I ask you to leave this church here with thanksgiving in your hearts. Let's magnify our God with much thanksgiving. He is worthy. As the rest of the worship team prepares to close us out in a chorus, I have a simple way that I'd like for us to reflect on this word. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask and for us to think on. And before I ask these questions, I'd like to just seek the Holy Spirit to help us discern in our hearts the answers to these questions. Holy Spirit, search us. Let's do this together. Let's quietly ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Questions will be on the projector. But let me ask you this morning in your lives, what is your heart lamenting over? What are you grieving over? What is your heart weeping over? What is it that your soul? is crying out for. Question two. What can you thank God for this morning to conquer that grief? What can you give God praise for? What can you magnify God for in your life? Latch on to that. Thank God for it. Let your hearts become overwhelmed by thankfulness and gratitude in your heart for God blessing you. And then lastly, this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'd like you to ask this question to your heart. How is your gratitude for God sharing the good news of Jesus with others? If you're not thinking of others, I think you need to recheck your heart. If you're not wanting to share the good news of the resurrected Christ and of being saved, recheck your heart. How is it that your gratefulness and your thankfulness to God is speaking out and sharing the gospel with others in your life? Church, we need to be mission-focused. We need to think of the Great Commission and think of the words that Jesus said. Share the gospel with others.